Hello. Welcome to the Body, Mind, Spirit podcast, the podcast for the Idea Crucible, an online multimedia magazine for practitioners and public alike. My name is Eric Moya, and I'll be your host. Please check us out at the Full Idea Crucible site at www.theideacrucible.com. There you can find articles, blogs, webinars, and practitioner supervision groups, all based around body, mind, spirit integration. Today's podcast is the second part of the interview I did with Heather Wahanek, a career nurse, therapist, and RN case manager who has extensive experience working with death and dying. If you haven't listened to part one yet, let me encourage you to stop this podcast right now and go check out the first one and come back to this one afterwards for the full and complete picture. As I mentioned in the first part of the interview, I have always been touched by Heather's ability to balance clinical skill and knowledge, as well as her ability to maintain a sense of transpersonal wonder for in the face of what, for most of us, can be the most terrifying of biological processes, dying. Onward. Here's the rest of the interview. Let me change, to, let me change direction here just a little tiny bit. The philosopher Jacques Chiron talked about there basically being three types of fear associated with death. One is what comes after death. Another is the actual event of dying. And then third, the fear of just like ceasing to be altogether. I would love, mm. to, I would love to hear what you feel is uh, what your experiences have taught you. I, yes, I feel that those people are afraid of those. But I think also what I see people grapple with daily is the, their struggle of decline, of losing their physical capacities. Because most of my patients, I don't tend to work in skilled nursing facilities, so most of my patients are at home and have a lot of autonomy. They can walk. Most of my patients, I meet them walking and talking and continent of their bowels and bladder. That process of losing all of that physical capacity I think is terrifying and creates many conflicts within themselves with their who they live with of how to ask for help, how to receive help, how to not identify that I'm I'm now weak. <laughs> you know, if they've it's it's I'd say gra- the existent and now mind you I don't open like the chaplain opens with what is your religious perspectives what's your spiritual journey been like that's not my opening role or my opening conversation with someone i mean i i get i know what church they go to or don't go to or what faith they are or you know i get a report about that but it's not my talking point to initiate conversation so People of strong faith will typically talk about what they believe the afterlife will be like. I mean, and it's usually hope-filled if they have an afterlife basis. I think people that don't have a real certainty about what's going to happen, they can be rather uncertain, but it doesn't tend to be what presses upon them. And as far as it being an event, I think there's some fear of that, but I think the presence the present moment of whatever their symptoms are, if they're in pain and they don't like it, or now now we're suggesting to use a walker or a bedside commode because they're weak, that just seems terrible to them. Like, oh my God, you can't believe, you can't think I'm going to have to do that to you. <laughs> sure. So I, I don't see, I don't hear the existential suffering as much in reference to what someone's afterlife beliefs are. 
mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but I'm not the chaplain. I will get bits and pieces more about unresolved relationships, like wanting to make amends with a child or a loved one, or I'll get those conversation pieces as far as trying to wrap things up and feel making sense of their life. The ceasing to be, I don't like not very many people. Some people I have atheists and they'll be pretty proud about it. That are like, it's okay, this is it. You're going to bury me in the ground and that'll be it, you know. And proud atheists are, as far as ceasing to be, they they have that picture and it's sort of, it's also a sense of confidence of what they believe in. Huh. Sense of empowerment. Um, yeah, it's like this is how I think it is and it's not my problem. My problem right now is... But I'm short of breath when I walk across the damn living room and I'm mad about it. <laughs> what do you got right. for me? You know, but again, I'm coming in as the nurse. I'm not coming in as the chaplain or as the social worker. Right. Well, and that's part of the reason why I even wanted to have this conversation with you is because is you know the wisdom that comes from doing it day in and day out, and the wisdom that comes from just sheer experience. You know, I I love that you talk almost immediately, you bring up the idea of um, the fear of decline. And so then for me, that kind of brings up the question. And I know this is a question that, you know, when I've talked with friends and mentioned that I would be having this conversation with you, the question comes up, well, how can someone die well? And how can someone not die well? And what suggestions or ideas do you have on that? Well, I think dying well is going through a process where you feel supported in the roller coaster of physical symptoms and personal feelings that you have. It's like any relational or transition that we have in our lives. Like if we're going to move cross country, you can plan, you can imagine, but you got to pack the boxes and you have to like do the work of it, right? Say the goodbyes of the people where you're at. And dying is like that. And I think the people that are brave enough, well, that's a judgment, but I'll give you a picture. Recently, one of my patients, stage four metastatic cancer, lots of body parts involved, but she's still walking and talking. And one of her daughters wanted her to keep fighting. And she was like, I'm done. And please hear me. This is, I want to have good, good, uh, some good days here, some good weeks, whatever I get, I want to not do any more treatments. And for Thanksgiving, she asked her family to all write her as if they were saying her obituary or her, her obituary or her celebration of life to write something as if they were making that presentation and present it to her. So for Thanksgiving, at the end of their meal, they lit some candles and everybody, she had like, I think there were 19 people that she had for her close family. And they all wrote out letters and they read them to her Wow. of what she meant to them in their life. And they brought photos. And so she came back after Thanksgiving and was like, I have the best family. I have had such a good life. And she, they put all those letters in a little, you know, slip covers and put it into a binder with photos. She's like, Heather, look at my life. Look at my family. And and she felt so seen and so validated. But she had to push against everybody's fear of actually acknowledging that she was dying and wanting to do this openly and consciously and begin the goodbyes and begin the thank yous and begin the She's like, oh, and we laughed and, you know, we sang a couple songs, a couple people sang to me. And, you know, she's like, 
they couldn't have been better than that. And I think that to me is courage in the face of decline. That image. It's a great image. Really powerful. And I have another one like that where someone who, an artist who had lived internationally and taught in Italy and had this amazing, gigantic career in New York and Los Angeles and Italy. And she was living in a very fine, our finest assisted living place that looks like a hotel on the <laughs> mountainside. It's actually, it's exquisite. It looks, and, but she was not tra- able to travel anymore. She had heart disease and arthritis. And her worst thing was the arthritis that she couldn't walk. And for her, that loss of what her life had been was excruciating. It was just, it was anguish. And I went through months just hearing about the anguish of not liking to be in a wheelchair and just that her life had no meaning. So this was her suffering. And, you know, we began talking about her pacemaker and she had actually brought up the question because aid and dying had been legalized. And she said, oh, how amazing to be able to choose when you get to die. She's like, but I could never do that because my children would think it was suicide and I could never burden them with that. And so then we talked about her pacemaker and she's like, yeah, I'm 100 percent paced. And I'm like, well, you could have that turned off. And she's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, you could make an appointment to your cardiologist and you could that is life support. It's keeping you alive, that machine. And she's like, well, if I turned it off, I wouldn't be committing suicide. And I said, no, it'd be withdrawing a machine that is keeping you alive. And for her, that little difference, oh, wow. it was so empowering. And being with her the day before her kids arrived, two days before her turning off the machine. And I saw her the day before and her kids were there and they were videoing her and they were telling, she was telling stories to the camera to all of her grandchildren through like little recordings on the phone. And she was so, I had not seen her that animated and that happy. And the day she's like, okay, tomorrow I've decided on my last meal. So you guys have to come for mimosas and bagels and locks. <laughs> and then we'll turn off my pacemaker. It'll be a party and you'll be there. <laughs> and it nice. was, again, her choosing that life for her, the way she'd had her life. It no longer had meaning to her. She didn't know what was next. It didn't that question didn't was it wasn't about that for her it was like this isn't worth it i don't know what's next wow so so for me a good death is somebody having their needs met whatever that looks like and feeling held and supported and connected to people and the people that are alone we bring in people and to me i i feel like helping someone have a good death is that Helping them come to their own sense of completion and facing it as best and at, at most they can. And sometimes it might be the moment right before they take their last breath, they squeeze someone's hand and, you know, hearts open and there's some sort of magic that takes place between two people. So I don't know. It's mysterious. Well, and, you know, once again, I'm just really appreciating what a sacred service you're providing to people. And, uh, you know, even in that last story that you just told, I mean, what a what a splendid little reframe, little reframe that made all the difference in the world for that person. Yeah, it was. So if you're able to script out your own death, what hopes do you have for how you want to meet your end? Well, 
I definitely want to die. So funny seeing different people, different diseases. I, I um, used to be so afraid of cancer, and now I think it's a good way to go. <laughs> you'll, totally, you'll totally laugh. I'm sorry, that's my dark nurse humor, but I used to be mortified of cancer because I had a friend that died young and um, 40, and I had been a nurse only about five years, and I felt like I couldn't even get close to her because I was so scared that she was going to die. I was so, so afraid and uncomfortable with the con- concept and it just, everything about it, it felt unfair, it felt horrible, devastating, but I couldn't bridge that gap between my fear and being there a lot for my friend. Now, as I take care of cancer patients, I feel like, oh, it's okay. I know how this goes, and the actual ending is not that bad. It's really the ending of falling asleep and, you know, letting go. So for me, it's, uh, I'm not saying I wish cancer upon myself. I don't. I, whatever disease process or old age, whatever, I just really, really pray, pray, pray that I will have my sentient consciousness with me <laughs> because I, I, it's really hard for me, the Alzheimer's and all dementia-related diseases. And that's, that's such a huge loss for a person and their family to face. And caring for the body of someone that's no longer themselves is really hard. So that, I would say that's, I hope that doesn't fall that that doesn't come to me. So I hope that I am able to embrace my decline and have a rockin' home funeral. And I'd even like to have uh, my body on a lovely, fierce, flaming fire, a pyre and a party all around that pyre and dancing all night long, if you want to know the truth. (laughs) (laughs) And there's one place in the United States in Colorado that it's legal to do that. So thank goodness I don't have to. Yes, to have an open pyre funeral, open pyre cremation, because it was going to be costly to uh, make sure that I was aging and dying in India when I'm not from India. How would I have any loved ones to be at my fire if I was in India? (laughs) So now now I know of a place. (laughs) It's actually on my my destination list. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually a little reservation in Colorado that does that for people. Wow. Good to know. So what do you believe happens? Do you have any particular beliefs about what will happen after you pass? Oh, I think it's a whole new a whole new experience. I have no idea. I don't think God is that big judge in the sky. So I don't have any defined beliefs. Honestly, I think my spiritual beliefs and what I imagined ever after, you know, the hereafter to be I had some more fixed opinions of it before I came a hospice nurse, but sitting at the bedside and being with people who have died and are dying, I just have no idea. I I don't know. It, it, it doesn't sound like it's distressing at all to not know for you. It's not, and I, I should have thought to bring it, but I didn't bring it. But I love this poem, and it, if I can paraphrase, it says, basically, when I cross the threshold, it, there'll be a new room. Or I'll be given wings to fly. <laughs> wow. So wow. I I feel that I don't know, and I don't right now. I can barely handle 
all the things that I'm supposed to know and do in this physical plane as fast as it moves with all of our technologies, that that'll be a different experience. And I hope that I, and I've been with people that see their loved ones while they're alive. And I do have a hope that my loved ones will meet me on the threshold because I have been with people who are ecstatic in their eyes as they see someone they love and recognize. So nice. I, I believe that that happens for people. So I do hope that will happen for me too. Okay. <laughs> so just a couple more questions and then, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Although I feel like we could talk about this forever. On some of the online forums, when I talked about having this conversation with you, one of the questions that frequently came up was, how has this chosen profession of yours transformed how you live your day-to-day life now? I feel as an this is my most meaningful service work that I've done so far. The depth of connection, the trust, the mutual appreciation that I have with my patients, and the reciprocity of being in connection is has made my heart bigger and has made me more appreciative and grateful for all that I have. So I think it's expanded my gratitude and capacity to relate to so many different types of people. Because honestly, at the end, politics and religion and money or not money, there's those aren't the dividing factors. It's really this human sense of connection. And it can be so deep. And it normally, I might never find a way to connect to a person because of all the outward differences that are noticeable, <laughs> whether their beliefs are <laughs> materialistic, right? So that profound, intimate connection has shaped me. And I also, on the other hand, feel like that my heart has kind of grown a bit weary and I do need to take care of it because I I do have a well mouth that has some heartache and grief from some beautiful people that I've connected deeply to and I've ushered them to their end and they're not here and I can't just call them up on the phone and say, and start that conversation up again. So that sometimes it's poignant for me and sometimes I wasn't ever a big crier and now I go to yoga and sometimes someone will say take a big breath appreciating life or I'll start bawling so you know it's rather embarrassing sometimes that like the poignancy and the fragility and the vulnerability of life can be brought forward with at a moment's notice Mm -hmm. and and are you are you maintaining that balance between sustaining yourself and, and holding space for others? I work on it every week. <laughs> I try new and more ways to fill my container, fill my cup. Nature and yoga and friends, family are what hold me together. Nice. So I'd say I also have has changed me in wanting to experience things that maybe I wouldn't experience before. Uh Like I want to try something fun and exciting and it's like, yeah, I'm going to rent that convertible for my birthday. (laughs) I can't (laughs) afford one, but I'm going to rent it and go drive on by the ocean. You know, I'd say sometimes those longings for a big experience come through and it's like woo let's have some fun because let's go dancing let's so i'd say that is a continual thread of wanting to make sure that i tend my sense of 
feeling alive and enlivened because it can get pretty sad and depressing if all I want to do is go home and have a glass of wine or two and go to bed. Great. That's when I know, oh, okay, this has really been a sad week. I can't, you know. Sure. Oh, I love it. Back in my, my counseling days, I used to love existential psychotherapy and Irvin Yalom was a, was a, a thinker and therapist that I personally found important. And one of his quotations, and I feel like everything about this interview and everything about you reminds me of this. And his quotation was, though the physicality of death destroys us, the idea of death saves us. I think. Oh, yes, I love that. You should send that to me. Oh, I will. I will. And, and I just appreciate that you're choosing to celebrate life and be alive because of your experiences through death. Yes. And I feel like I have more capacity for intimacy by walking with people who are dying. Nice. Well, Heather, this has been an absolute treat talking with you. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we could keep on doing it. And maybe we'll do another one of these again one of these days. But for the meantime, thank you so much for your time and your attention and for making this happen. You're very welcome. And I think any body, mind, spirit practitioner can walk beside people who are dying either volunteering or professionally, whether they're touch therapy or body therapy, I mean, psychotherapy, whatever their modality is, there's room for everyone to nurture people who are dying. What a wonderful interview. Well, this concludes the interview with Heather. I hope you enjoyed the look into the body, mind, spirit world of the death and dying from an RN case manager's point of view. Thanks for listening. And, of course, when you get a chance, come check out the Idea Crucible site, www.theideacrucible.com. Browse around a bit and take a look at the stuff we have to offer, especially if you're a therapist or a person with a value towards body-mind-spirit integration. And once again, if you or you know of someone who might have an interesting perspective or experience on body-mind-spirit, we want to hear from you. We are always looking for new contributors to the emerging conversation and dialogues on body-mind-spirit. As always, thank you for your time and attention and for wanting to be a more integrated person today and every day.